0: But you damned young idiot, War Starts at Midnight.
1: Hey there, welcome back to War Starts Midnight, the podcast dedicated to taking deep dives into directors' filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Jacob Graves. Namaste. And Peterson Hill. I brought some mace. On each episode of our series, The Magnificent Andersons, we explore another element of the oeuvres of American auteurs Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Guys, what are we bantering about today?
2: Well, we've got a soul-searching review of Wes's fifth and possibly best feature, the Darjeeling Limited.
0: Plus, we've got the perfect to pair with the Whitman Brothers' Journey Through India. And of course, we'll wrap up the show as you always do with some really rad recommendations.
1: But first... Hey, guys.
0: Hey, Chris. What's going on, Chris?
1: So we're in an interesting place yet again. Back to back, we've got reviews of movies that we've already discussed once on the show. Uh, this time, at least, Peterson, you weren't involved in the original discussion. I'll I'll put the uh, original episode in the show notes, and then I'll actually post it as a bonus episode next week if anyone's interested in kind of comparing our thoughts, seeing if we've grown at all changed it all uh but guys to start off
2: spoiler i haven't grown and i only joined this podcast to talk about this movie so we can do it as many times as you guys want to
0: <laughs> luckily for jake i was not on the last episode
1: oh boy okay so let's let's start off by before we get into how we're feeling about it now let's rewind a little bit to the last time we'd seen this movie whatever that may have been and Let's do what we like to do at the top of these Magnificent Anderson episodes and kind of talk about where this film, Darjeeling Limited, sat with us before revisiting. Um Jake, we already know how you feel. How about you start us off?
2: Yeah. So I watch this movie a lot. I usually probably watch it about once a year. Uh I throw it on. There's still things in it that... Uh, especially character driven things that I'm, I'm still unwinding and still building out. Um, I, I really enjoy watching this. This is my, even though I don't think it's the best, I think it is my favorite Wes Anderson movie and by far the most underappreciated. Um, this was also the
1: first Wes
2: Anderson movie that I saw in theaters, um, which were you there that night?
1: Chris, did you come see with us in I believe so. I'm pretty sure. Yes. Yeah,
2: I'm I'm pretty sure as well. It's also the first Wes Anderson movie that Chris and I watched together. So there's that as well. And leaving that, even the first time, I was like, that was a really good movie.
1: That was something I really liked. I remember you being very enthusiastic about it at the time.
2: Yeah, that has not let up at all, even through revisiting it. And I don't know if, how much of that is influenced by um, just the time that I saw it and really formative years. We were in film school. This was an a influential movie to me. Uh, But it's still something I I love to watch and revisit. So I'm going to be the homer on this one. So now let's go to someone less positive.
1: Yeah. Peterson, what's your relationship with this? How many times have you seen this movie before this revisit?
0: Seen it once. Saw it uh, October 27th of 2007. Saw it Saturday after after it came out. Okay. Mm -hmm. Saw it on the afternoon and might have been the emptiest theater I've ever been in. For wow. a new, for like a new movie, for like a true new movie. Um,
1: I was about to say, you've never seen Rules Don't Apply.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but opening weekend, literally, it was dead. There was no one there. Um, I walked out positive and then it soured on me relatively quickly. Kind of is, is it kind of sat and sloshed in my brain a little bit. It just soured on me. For whatever reason, I can't, you know, I don't know exactly what happened between, you know, sitting down and then the three or four days after. But it soured quickly. Um, some things I remember enjoying about it. You know, I love the music is maybe my favorite use of music in any Anderson film. Um, I remember enjoying the performances. But other than that, uh, I don't – I didn't remember much of the actual story. I remember the plot beats – and certain things had happened, but kind of where it was going and the intricate details, I did not remember.
2: But but going in into it, the first viewing, you were actively excited for a Wes Anderson movie.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I was incredibly excited. I was walking in, the new Wes Anderson movie, hell yeah, three and a half stars from Ebert, which we've kind of been joking about for the past couple of hours. <laughs> um, but – it's. I was actively excited about it. I was very excited to go in, see it, and you know, because I, I did. I liked every Wes Anderson movie except The uh, Life Aquatic up until that point. So why wouldn't I like this one?
1: Yeah, I was actually. I was a little bit tempered, I think, and I, I'm pretty sure, come around on The Life Aquatic by the time uh, Darjeeling Limited came out, but still was not sure. You know, thinking, well, maybe his best years are behind him. Um, and was pleasantly surprised the first time I saw it, uh, enjoyed it quite a bit. There was a lot, there was a lot of newness, you know, things that we hadn't seen from Wes Anderson and that, uh, you know, especially in the immediate moment felt great. And, but it's, it's a movie that I've kind of struggled with over the years. It's one that it's definitely at the bottom of the list for me, as far as Anderson movies that I revisit. Mm-hmm. And that being said, I've still seen it, you know, probably at least a half dozen times. Which for me, two is, or three
2: of those are on my insistence. Yes,
1: that you revisited. That, that's that's true. Uh, <laughs> but it's you know that's really low for me for for Wes Anderson films.
0: Like you, Chris. The couple of days after seeing it, I had the thought: Is he a one trick pony? That. I'm not going to enjoy any of his other movies. Like if I, his, he peaked for me and now it's all downhill. Um, I definitely had that thought in the days after seeing it for the first time.
1: I mean, it wasn't so much that I was thinking one trick pony as much as just like, you know, there are, there are directors or there are bands that, you know, you, you like a certain stage and you don't like another, and maybe they come back later in, in a, you know, a third or fourth or fifth stage that you'd get back on board with. I mean, I was like that with Bombek. you know, in, in actually around this time, I was not quite so sure. I thought all of his best movies were behind him, but that has clearly not been true. Uh And clearly not yeah. true with, with Wes either, but yeah. um yeah. So where, where I was standing coming into this, this time, I mean, you could go back and listen to our discussion from, uh it's actually just about two years ago now uh that, that we had it. And I was kind of in the place of it's not a abysmal movie, but it's definitely Wes's worst film. And it's it's the one Wes Anderson film where I can definitely find flaws that take me out of the film. So
0: true weakest whimsy.
1: Uh I'm not gonna say yet. We didn't have that uh criteria back when we first discussed it we'll see where it falls now
3: let's go get a drink and smoke a cigarette i want to start by thank you both for being here thank you thank you you're the two most important people in the world to me i've never said that before but it's true and i want you both to know it i love you peter thank you i love you jack i love you too How did it get to this? Why haven't we spoken in a year? Let's make an agreement. Do what? A, I want us to become brothers again like we used to be and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Okay. B, I want us to make this trip a spiritual journey where each of us seek the unknown and we learn about it. Can we agree to that? Sure. I guess so. C, I want us to be completely open and say yes to everything, even if it's shocking and painful. Can we agree to that? I had Brendan make us an itinerary. Who's Brendan? My new assistant. He's gonna place an updated schedule under our doors every morning of all the spiritual places and temples that we need to see, and expedite hotels and transportation and everything. How's he gonna do that? I had him bring a printer and a laminating machine. Where is he? The way it actually doesn't matter, he's in a different compartment on another part of the train. But we never see him, ever. So that's more or less it. Free please that sound okay to you sounds good sure yeah it sounds good you have any questions i do okay go ahead what happened to your face
1: so everyone knows the darjeeling limited is wes anderson's worst movie but what jake's opinion presupposes is maybe it isn't (laughs) jake sell me on this movie what's so great about it
2: here's what i don't get about the whole thing everybody shits on this movie and when you actually watch it it's a really compelling tale I get that it is whimsical in a way. I, I see a lot of the negative points that other people have, but between, uh, like P- even Peterson, even the hater says he remembered good performances, good good uh soundtrack. I would even add in excellent cinematography, excellent uh color palette choice. It's a little bit different from what we had seen from Wes up until then, but honestly, a great road trip and a great look at, or a compelling look at grief and at family, and at uh, characters who really do experience growth over the course of their arc, but without being any sort of a stereotypical arc that they're going over. It's it's a loosely assembled movie, and it doesn't have uh, maybe as strong of a plot that some people would like to see, and I liken it closer to something like The Life Aquatic in that, where it is things happening, it is going along as a road trip, But it – I don't know. It's one of those that has always spoken to me. And that's – I guess uh, I'm I'm an emotional reviewer at times. So if something doesn't click for me, it's hard for me to really like it. And if it does, it's hard for me to sell it down the river.
1: Peterson, this is soured for – or this soured for you in your memory. Did revisiting it change that at all for you?
0: Not the worst Wes Anderson movie. Okay. Okay. I – so (laughs) – I am moderately positive on this movie. Um, I think I'm taking first, that as a
2: victory so far. <laughs>
0: I think the first 45 minutes are nearly perfect in my mind. Mm-hmm. I think the second half gets a little bit messy, and
2: so maybe up up until the the uh, raft accident with the kids.
0: Roughly, yeah, that's exactly okay. the midpoint of the movie. So I would say that's the moment for me that. I wouldn't say the movie completely loses its footing. I just think the – I like them on the train hanging out, their dysfunction mm-hmm. more than Wes Anderson murdering a innocent Indian child to make these white people feel better. But
2: you're okay with P.T. Anderson deafening an orphan, a bastard in a basket. <laughs> However, Wes kills one Indian kid and the whole thing's off. <laughs>
0: Um, Something about the way he does it is very – I wouldn't say callous because I don't think – it's not callous, but the it's – the young child dies and it is told and felt through the prism of the main characters through the three white people. And we get no sense of what the village feels of their loss. Obviously, they're sad and we see some sadness, but – they're not we don't actually see what the village is going through, which I think is a problem. I think that is a problem in the film
1: Peterson what you're describing is kind of what i've every time I think back on this movie, that's sort of how I feel like um every time I watch it or every every time I think about watching it, um I always think about the kind of that midpoint and them visiting that village and how just kind of awkward it is in my mind and i was amazed watching it this time around honestly my sort of feeling about this film is the inverse of yours i feel like when we're stuck in the train with them there's it's sort of a sort of a michael scott thing for me where these three characters confined to a train together mm-hmm. so close is just so itchy for me to watch that I, it, it's so uncomfortable that I, I kind of just want to escape and don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. And so then when they get kicked off the train, you know, I watching it last night, I wasn't even thinking about where this is going or anything. And so I was like, okay, finally, like we get, we get a moment to kind of settle down a little bit and they're still, you know, bickering and whatnot, but it's, it's a different we're at a different pace and then they're walking along and Hey, look at these assholes. And immediately I tense up and I'm like, Oh gosh, I forgot this was coming. Okay. Mm-hmm. Bracing myself. I was amazed at how well the village stuff worked for me um, this time around with one minor exception that we can get into um, when we get into talking about uh, music later. But uh, the thing that works for me is just how kind of silent
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: meditative it is. And it is really it begins to take the focus away from the brothers and put it on the other people around them. And it's it seems to be the first time that they are noticing anyone else. And not to say that there's not a question of I think we talked about the cultural tourism Quite a bit mm-hmm. on the the last re- review, if I remember correctly. Um, I didn't go back and revisit, but um, I, I think there is still a bit of that to like reckon with, just in the nature of of the film. But I I honestly think the back half of this movie for me is the saving grace of it, in my opinion.
2: And, and I like both halves. What what I would what I would argue is that the at the start it is a very entertaining. Uh, trip through India for three white dudes. So they're going through and they're not actually connecting with the things that are going on with them at all. They go to right. these holy places and they bicker. They're walking through the street, get laughed at by kids. He's like, oh, I love these people. Like, it's just not any sort of connection. They're not earning anything. It's fun. It's fun to watch. It's It's an entertaining thing to watch these dysfunctional people. But after the accident, that's when they actually start to... Uh, blend not blend in but let's say uh, actually connect with the people they actually feel an emotional connection yes they don't speak the language so there is that disconnect so it's all told very silently but I think one shot that disproves the the, or not disproves but is kind of a counter argument to a, a callous handling of the village is they give a shot of the dad grieving entirely. None of our characters in it. They, uh, West pans over and the dad kind of has his hand, his head in his hands just downtrodden. It's not a big focus, but it's a, I feel it's a, um, it is a focus on the village. We're going a- across, the brothers aren't together, but they're all in sort of their own well constructed, almost biblical looking paintings or, uh, if you want to think uh, like a, a Roman-looking painting, something like that. They're in these white robes. They're all sort of well-placed, but they're finally not standing out. They're they're blending in with the community that they're in. So I I, I lean on the second half more on Chris's take on that one. I, I don't feel like they're disconnected.
0: The focus certainly turns to something more introspective for the Whitman mm-hmm. brothers, which I do appreciate, but something about... There being, to me, a bit of a distance from the culture, and the whole movie up until now, we we obviously get it that they are true. You know, as Francis says, we're going to have this life affirming experience, and we're going to have these great things. And he tries to basically plan a life changing and redemptive narrative for them. He he wants to plan this very life-changing experience. And when you plan that kind of thing, it doesn't, it just doesn't pan out.
1: Also, they're, they're these rich, ugly Americans.
0: And they're rich, ugly Americans that have certainly a bit of entitlement over what, anything on that train. And I will say, I think Anderson knows exactly what he's doing. And I think the, he knows exactly the finger he's pointing. And I do really respond to what he's saying about them. And, They are rich, ugly Americans, and he wants us to know he is in on that – if you want to call it a joke, he's in on the joke. But when it gets to the village, they turn inside and they start being introspective, and it's – it does. I think it's a really emotionally volatile and cathartic moment, and I think the the Adrian Birdie character, Peter, I think is the one that, to me, I think is the most sympathetic of the movie. I think he gives a – Really great performance, but I think for some reason, when you have somebody as big of a star as Irfan Khan, who is one of the biggest, was you know, unfortunately he passed away a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, and that that was really. I forgot he was in this, and that was really me too. He
0: does. He doesn't say a single word that is not him grieving. He doesn't have a conversation with anyone. We just see him grieving or him yelling that he just lost his son and it takes the humanity outside of him. And for some reason that, that has never sat well with me. And I think it didn't sit well with me this time. Um, and it, I will say the movie gets back on track after that sequence. I think that sequence, it's just for whatever reason, it's just, maybe it's the litmus test for the movie. It just something about it doesn't sit right.
1: I, I think that's sort of, it's in the grammar that that they're using at the at this moment in the story in everything is sort of quieter and just sort of happens and there is something a little uh violent and abrupt about the death that you just you don't feel it coming at all and so when it happens it's almost over before you realize what's going on
0: i think that's really effective the way it's shot scene. I think it's Wes Anderson's certainly his most dynamic staging of action. I mean, compare that to The Life Aquatic. And, yeah. I, I'm all about <laughs> that. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, true. It, it was seeing them back to back, I think I think that sequence is incredibly effective.
3: Yep. Um,
1: but the moment afterward as well, like it reminded me of, uh, this time around, the the second film in the Apu trilogy, uh Aparugito, which I may be butchering the name of but there is a death in that film that just sort of happens and the first time watching that movie it felt like Deus Ex Machina just like oh well we got to kill someone to move on to another point point. Um, and revisiting that film time and time again like I've come to realize no this is this is the grammar that Satajit Rai is using here and you know obviously he's using a lot of uh Rai or Ray I don't know how I've it's pronounced both ways let's let's just call him Ray for Rai the... I think it's Rai um, is it Rai okay
0: I've heard um, him say it um in an interview
1: okay great then we'll call him Rai and we'll be we'll be right. pretentious in that way um but you know he's obviously using a lot of uh music from Satyajit Ray films here, mm-hmm. um both music from his films and music that he composed. So he's obviously a student of him. It feels it it would not surprise me at all to find out that there's there's a bit of that mirroring going on here with yep. uh the way the way that he's doing um the way that he's presenting it. I just I think it is um it's unexpected which makes it something that kind of is off-putting but it's also uh upon diving deeper into it i'm not as i'm not anywhere near as sort of uh upset about it, or I don't feel icky about it in the way that I I thought I did. And I think really the way you're, Peterson, you were saying that you think Peter's the most sympathetic character. I don't think there is a sympathetic character between the three of them. I think Francis feels like the most overbearing because he is the leader. Mm -hmm. But um, the other two definitely get their moments to show uh, just how bad they can be. With, uh, With Peter, it's Whenever we get, so we get this moment where this child is, has died in his arms and now he's reflecting on, he's having a child. And so it's when he's his most vulnerable. And then what do we do? We cut to his darkest moment when finally he's the asshole brother in the flashback. Mm-hmm. And then with, with Jack, his big moment of revealing just how much of an asshole he is, is when he corners Rita in the bathroom. Um, so I, I don't think any of them are terribly sympathetic. It's just a matter of some hide just how dark they can be uh, more than others.
2: Yeah. And, and one last thing on that scene that I want to say, I, I think a lot of times when you try to make something surprising or co- coincidental or or try to do a turn, uh, in the tone of a movie, it, it, it can it can fall flat. I still love the dialogue and the way that was written for "Look at these assholes," and then mm-hmm. that rope's going to break. That is exactly when you when you do see things go down in real life. That that rung pretty true for me. Of like, you can almost see what's about to happen, and and it and it and it sold that whole moment in a way that that could have been really botched and dropped for me.
0: Well, and they immediately dropped their own selfishness to try and save these kids so it i mean it does redeem kind of a redeeming in moment way. in a way
1: yeah it yeah. is I, I don't i don't think it's full-on redemption but it's at least you see them move you see at least the uh the indicator move a little bit closer to they're not totally narcissistic and stuck in their own heads there's a little you know, bit
2: well, well I, think, I, think, I think they're complex characters i don't i don't think yeah. they're just one thing No, well, i think
0: that i think the biggest thing is Everyone is, especially at that age, a different version of themselves around their siblings. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you may be a little bit more narcissistic and a little bit more kind of puffing your chest around your siblings. When you're around other people, that changes and things kind of ease the sharp edges, get sanded down a little bit. And I think that's something – Anderson is certainly playing with here.
2: Yeah, and and I'm glad you said that because I've never been able to put that really in in words before. But but you wouldn't see a, a normal person throw a belt at another person's face, but you yeah. absolutely can see brothers doing that. Yeah, that is well within like the range of acceptable behavior when you're around a sibling.
0: Yeah, you're going to hurt the people you love the most, and that's yeah. yeah. It's really them trying to figure out how to like each other, even as they love each other. And that's yeah. the tricky balance the families walk all the time.
2: And that exact scene where he throws the belt, they get into a fist fight. The youngest Jack goes immediately to what like a young kid would do, which is like, "I gotta stop him." So like, goes and grabs his mace. <laughs> I love you, but I, but I'm I gonna love mace you in the face. But I'm gonna mace you in the face. Like it, it's it's perfect. It's. And and then they they chase him down. He pepper sprays him. He runs into the the glass and gets kicked off the train. It's like mom comes in or dad comes in and kicks him off. Like they were grown men being little kids.
1: I think another reason why the back half is was so resonant to me this time around is because there's there's a bit of a mystery both to their mother and their father and. Mm-hmm the way that it all finally wraps up once we get to Angelica Houston and we realize that their mom, that Francis is basically playing yep. their mom. He's, he has embodied her characteristics. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of get the picture of, you know, initially you're thinking, well, she's not coming to the funeral. So she must be, you know, she's, she's trying to send a message and be selfish mm-hmm. in some way. Uh But it, to me, it seems pretty clear that this entire family is a little screwed up and they, you know, it's, it's family in sort of the same sense as we see with something like Royal Tenenbaums, but even a little less whimsy mm-hmm. to it. Um, it's, a little, it's a little rougher around the edges and a little more realistic, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I,
2: think, I don't think this is a particular whims- particularly whimsical film.
1: No. And we can we can get into that too. But uh but I I think, you know, when you see her reaction to not coming to the funeral finally at the mm-hmm. end, like I I'm totally on her side. I totally feel like, oh no, she probably has her reasons for not showing up. There's and I probably love that we don't get an answer. But there's but there's probably a history there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that all the history in this movie is implied. We yep. get the yep. we get the I think the story is the Lufthansa automobile or automotive, and then yeah. it's what is it in real? What is it in the actual movie? Though it's no, it's um, a, it, no, they're it's that? they're slightly off. It's like Lufthansa, oh, Luf, Yeah, um, I thought
2: they were both Lufwafa, but no,
0: one's Lufthansa. So the okay, uh, I believe the short story is Lufthansa. The other one's Lufwafa. They're fictional um, characters. So they're yeah <laughs> they're fictional characters supposedly, but what I love about that that's essentially the backstory we get. They don't really talk about their childhoods. Yeah, they don't talk about what they were like, um, which I which I do really appreciate. They but don't even talk about the dad very much. No, they talk a little bit about him. They we see his belongings and his baggage, and we see those things, but we don't actually hear them talk what he was like or what he was like as a father.
1: Well, and they're they're speculating on. You know what he his opinion would have been. That's the most we ever get of him. Really, he wouldn't have wanted
0: you to have those glasses. He would have wanted us all to have the glasses. Yeah. Did did he What's really that? say you were the favorite?
2: No, it was a lot of gurgling. He could have. I don't, have. I don't really good. know. Yeah.
0: Which I think is part of why I think Peter' character is a little bit more sympathetic is that he was, and I'm not sure exactly how close he was the day of because Anderson doesn't really show us that. And there's enough. But he was there. He was there in some capacity, and Anderson is playing with kind of these mistruths the entire movie, kind of the small lies that people tell Mm -hmm. all around each other to make themselves feel better about themselves. So how close is Peter? I'm not really sure, but he was close enough to be affected by it. And to lose your parent in that way, I think, is going to affect you differently than the other brothers. So I think there is, in some way, maybe that's the sympathy I feel for him a little bit more than the other two, because... The other two lost their dad. One of them lost their dad as he saw it happen.
2: I, I, so I had a different take this time, and I want to get your opinions on this. Okay. So we know Francis acts like, um, acts like the mom. And yeah. uh, Peter is wearing the dad's glasses. He's carrying the dad's keys. I had a theory I think I talked about it on the last episode, but that Bill Murray's character is sort of a stand in for the dad. And I I haven't been able to really put that together yet. I didn't know. First time I watched, I thought this is a bait and switch. That's all it is. You get hooked on Bill Murray and he doesn't really show up again. Yeah. Then eventually I came around to say that's sort of the dad. He's not really in the picture, but he's there at the beginning. Not, Not his dad, but like a stand in or a proxy for that or something. And this time I was trying to figure out if Peter is like the dad and we don't see the dad, but he's a lot like him. And one of the things that kind of goes towards my, my theory that I'm building there, Bill Murray's running late for the train, running to try to catch the train, holding his bags. Peter does the same thing at the beginning. I wonder if he is sort of a proxy for the dad and his thing's like, don't, don't order for me. Let me order for myself. That whole thing was showing some sort of conflict between the dad and the mom that we didn't get to see or wasn't told in the movie, but is, is sort of being implied.
1: I like that read. And I think, I mean, there's also this he's obviously about to become a new father Mm -hmm. and then there's the uh which doesn't necessarily connect so much to that but there's this trauma of him losing his father being as peterson says Mm -hmm. being there and then that mirroring in the loss of the child and he's he says i didn't save mine yeah um there's there's these little and and I think that's where this movie is operating the best when it's saying the least and just sort of lilting these big sort of overwhelming things up there.
2: I don't think it ever says that the mom and dad got divorced, but I I think they're divorced. And one of the reasons I think that is uh, Peter says, "I I always thought I'd get divorced. I think he just saw that from his parents and that sort of mm-hmm. a thing he had. This movie says very, very little, but implies a lot. And that's one of the reasons I can revisit it, because it is not a, a very telly movie. Yeah. Uh, you you really have to sit and think with it.
0: I don't hate the Peter line where he says, I didn't save mine. I don't hate that line. I don't think you need it necessarily. I think everything is on Adrian Birdie's face at that moment. I think it's one line of dialogue too far.
2: And, and I disagree. I really like the line. It, it shows... It to me, it felt like a really real, a really true line. Like they all, all the brothers split. They grabbed their own kid to save, and he didn't save his. It felt really true, and it wasn't like a lot of lines in Wes Anderson movies tend to be a bit whimsical or a bit stage or a bit stilted. And that was a, a for Wes on the Wes Anderson scale, a line dripping with emotion.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And it's not that I dislike it. I just I think you know it before he says it. And yeah. But but
2: one of the things I like in general about this movie is it is not as whimsical as the other Wes Anderson movies, Uh, especially the ones we've seen so far. Look at just the Life Aquatic with its little um, uh, claymation fish and the the submarine and all of these little little quirks that you get in a Wes Anderson movie. You get a lot of great imagery, but I don't find it particularly quirky or particularly whimsical. Do you guys agree with that?
1: I I think this is polar opposite – of like he couldn't have gone much further in a different direction as far mm-hmm. as setting um from Life Aquatic to this. Life Aquatic, as I said on on that episode, feels sort of like Pee Wee's playhouse in the, the yeah, world. Yeah. This feels I mean they are in India. And so this feels this is Sort of an outlier in his filmography in that this is the one time where a location plays itself and is intended to be itself mm-hmm. and i while I think it's interesting, I don't know I think that's where some things start to fall off for me is mm-hmm. that um when he's building his own world, there's a little more room to explore when he's in our existing world, um, I think there's boundaries that he's, he's bouncing up against when he wants to go a little bit more whimsical. And he doesn't, I, I agree with you on the whole, like, I don't think he's, uh, I think he's holding back. He's restraining a lot from particularly what we've just seen from him. Um, this is the most grounded film that, that he's done, but there is something about the, um, the lack of it and the the setting and the place where um where he puts this that actually felt like a bit of a a little bit of a detractor for me
2: if 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 you want to see the whimsical just go and watch part 1 uh hotel chevalier with the little wind-up toys and and peter Sar- peter Saraset, is that his name yeah um, um. Uh, where do you go to my lovely like that that to me is is the, the whim- whimsy for this movie but because
1: that's the world that Jack built and Jack yes. is the short story
2: author yep.
0: and this movie is completely devoid of the whimsy but I do think it's really refreshing if you swap this movie with Life Aquatic in the order that he made them I think this becomes the weaker movie Life Aquatic becomes the stronger film because I think a lot of the whimsy would potentially drain out I think he realized You know what? I've reached my whimsy and my kind of how far I can push that. Let me scale it back and look at this at a more human level. And I think by draining some of that whimsy out, he finds the human characters more. Mm -hmm. In the first half, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, this is his most beautiful film from a visual perspective. Yep. At least so far. You know, it's –
1: he. Yeah. He he shoots in scope in a way that shouldn't be – like you shouldn't be able to shoot – on a train interior, like an actual moving train and in interiors in, in cinema two, three, five, one, and make it work. And it,
2: it, it's a real train.
1: Uh, yeah. Most of it is wow. a real train. There are, there are some pickups and stuff where it's, mm-hmm. it's not even, you know, even that, that shot at the end where they're going through, you know, and you see Bill Murray again, you see Natalie Portman that's on a real train.
0: He built the really? built those on the train.
1: Yeah,
2: um,
0: that's which, amazing. Yeah, I, I just think he creates this really beautiful visual world, and it feels like you're in India in, in a way. And you know, I've not been to India, so I could just be speaking out of my ass. But it it feels like at least a version of India because even while in the first half, when you're watching them and they're essentially trying to find their spirituality and, you know, it's – they're immersing themselves in the culture in a way even while they're also being complete tourists and kind of, oh, well, those are my shoes and he stole one of my shoes and it's – all that stuff I think works really well because by displacing them as much as he does in the first half, he's beginning to orient us as an audience to what they – are like his people and what this world is going to put them through Mm -hmm. so that when it gets out of the village and into really the more emotional kind of last 30 minutes of the film, I think Anderson's doing something really special. Um, So I think he is, I think he is at complete command of what he wants to do. And a lot of that is by probably being a little bit more aggressive towards himself saying, I'm not going to, push the whimsy because you can see in moments where it's starting to trend that way and it's like he the rubber band's starting to pull and he mm-hmm. doesn't let it pull. He doesn't let it pull at all.
1: I mean there are still those elements in the characters and the composition and that sort of thing, but it's not it's it's not the full blown, full tilt sort of whimsy of that we've we've just seen in Life Aquatic. What is it, Peterson, about the first half that you think is so strong in comparison to the sound? Like what what draws you in 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 the first half of
0: this. Anderson's telling you everything you need to know in sparse dialogue in these tiny little intimate moments between the three brothers as they're ordering food. And then one gets up to go get a drink and, you know, one of them says, well, I'm going to have a baby and don't tell the other one. And then Mm -hmm. there's those chains of lies they're telling to each other or not really lies, but these chains of kind of not communicating. And he's telling you everything you need to know about their dynamic yeah. And then when it finally does get to the scene at the automotive house you understand exactly what how those three people are going to react in that situation. And I think he yep. does a really beautiful way of building character, building character and building character and also showing you, you know, how bad of people they are. Like Jason Schwartzman, you know, he may be the my least favorite like person of them all. I like the Schwartzman performance, but yeah. He's just – he literally gets on there and he's thinking, you know what? I'm attracted to her. I'm going to have her. That is – that's how it's going to be. And I'm i am rich and I'm white and I get everything I want.
1: Yeah. He's so sleazy. There's so much entitlement. It's its super creepy and so and think, gross.
0: And I think it's – you also know from the very beginning or at least I did the first time and I think this time too. And it may be because Wes Anderson kind of tips his hat that way a little bit that – that the Owen Wilson character Francis definitely wasn't in an accident. That happened because he wanted it to,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think within seconds you can feel that.
1: Yeah, but then whenever he finally reveals the scars in the airport, it's a it's a moment that's earned, and it's really stark and dramatic, and actually works works really well.
2: I and think. I think it works really well when he tells the mom, I drove my motorcycle into the, you know, I crashed my motorcycle on purpose or whatever it is, he says. Yeah. It's a very stark bit of honesty that they don't have with each other that they do have with the mom.
0: Well, and I think when, as soon as the two brothers hear that moment, they know, they said, well, of course he did. Like,
3: yeah. How do we not yeah.
0: see that? I think it's what they're thinking. And it it's that moment that siblings have that you just, you should be able to see through your sibling's bullshit. But you don't always – you can't always see by, beyond it in a way that, you know what? Maybe they're going to tell your parents something they wouldn't tell you. And it's this very cyclical family dynamic they have that they're their own worst enemy.
2: Which, which is funny too because the brothers as a group are picking apart what the mom says for bullshit. Yeah. There, oh, yeah. There's a tig- – There's she said there's a tiger but that's bullshit. And then they get there, and there's a tiger. They're like, oh,
0: well, what's funny is it flies in the face of the adage: you can't bullshit a bullshitter because they're all bullshitters, yeah. and they completely bullshit each other, and they can't even figure out each other's own bullshit.
2: Yep,
1: it's because they're so close that they can't they can't maneuver around it. They don't have a bearing to mm-hmm. independently step back and and look at it. They're too well. They, they're too and they entrenched. they know
2: all the cards that each other are holding yeah. at the same yep. time, like. Like they know what buttons to press on each other, but what 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 did you guys think of um the the uh play with fire montage the express ourselves with uh without words what did you guys think of that
1: it works man it it really it's, does it's a it is a cliche and yet it it is earned and works for me.
0: It's one of those scenes that I knew was coming and I had remembered it from the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. And it really – it stuck with me for a reason. Um, yep, it's just really does hit home in a way that some of the emotional stuff in this doesn't quite as much, but that certainly does. And I think Wes Anderson is so good at poking fun at their spiritual journey. You yeah. know, When they get the peacock feathers and they're on top of the thing, when the train is lost and Owen Wilson's – Trying to find meaning in the fact that the train's lost. We
2: haven't located ourselves
0: <laughs> yet. What do you mean? This is so perfect. You know, this is everything we need to know. You know it's our spiritual yeah. journeys here, and they go up to the hill, and everyone does the peacock thing wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And
2: no, 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 they don't even they don't even have time to do it there. They end up doing oh, it somewhere no, yeah, they, a, they a, up, after they get kicked off the train at the fire.
0: Yeah, they do it at the fire later, but they get ready to do it, and he's poking fun at them because. They're even at the end too. I think he's poking fun. They aren't able to really exist outside of themselves any time throughout this movie. You know, even in the airport when uh, Adrian Brody is sitting there and he's like, "I oh, really, I'm gonna miss the this country. I love the way it smells. Yeah, it smells spicy. Yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's so, yeah.
1: It's so it's it's <laughs> a cringy line, but it also like, but because, it's cringy on purpose. Well, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah, yeah. because we are on the side of These, we understand who these characters are and we're not, we're supposed to find the humanity in them. We're not supposed to relate to them in a, or we're not supposed to see them as the heroes. Um, It works. Here's what I love about the
2: montage. I've seen this movie 20, 25 times, whatever. It still works for me. It works every time. It makes it feel like this movie had a big ensemble cast when it didn't it shows you 10 12 people that you've run into over the course of this this road film but west the whole time is really only focused on the the three main characters and i think that's a huge strength of this movie but the seeing the emotions of those other characters and seeing where they're sitting and and they're Really loneliness or grief for failure. I'm not sure, but it, it's it's sad emotions really for all of them. Helped to complement the three people who we had focus on, and really the most focus that Wes has given to to any small number of characters since Bottle Rocket. I guess maybe Rushmore. Rushmore had a
1: had a smaller cast as well. We've talked about this before, but Anderson is the type of guy who he knows how to use a needle drop extraordinarily well, and he's use the stones from the beginning, but, Mm -hmm. um, and this is a song that, you know, it's not quite gimme shelter or something like that, where it's like to hear it is you have to earn it, but it's, it's still the type of thing where it could just as easily not work. It could, this moment could just as easily fall apart if it hasn't been earned, um, by the end. I do think though that some of the music really works really well. And some of it doesn't.
2: Some of the, like the satoshi Rai um, uh, things or some of the, the Kinks music or, or what do you think?
1: Some of the Kinks stuff, I think This Time Tomorrow works so well because we're coming off of, I forget what the, the opening track is. It's that really kind of frenetic um, mm-hmm. track as we're, we're weaving through traffic and everything and trying to get to the train um, with Bill Murray's character. And then it slows down into the classic slow motion Wes Anderson. And Mm -hmm. we get this time tomorrow and it's immediately giving us this sort of culture clash of we're going from this sort of, you feel the heat of the city Mm -hmm. and you feel the speed and the congestion. And then he drops that, drops that needle, throws the kinks on, goes in slow-mo and then it feels like, okay. now here's this Westerner who comes into the world and is kind of trying to see it through his own lens or trying to adapt it. So, like, I think that works really well as this culture clash moment. But you don't like strangers at the. uh, I don't like strangers. I think it totally I think it totally undermines everything else that is built up before and after it. It just, when they're, and this is when they're walking out, it's basically at the funeral procession. They walk out in slow-mo. That left to
2: right tracking shot in slow-mo as they go through the whole funeral. And then it
1: cuts into the flashback. And once we get in the flashback, it's working again. But that, that moment, like, that's where I agree with Peterson. It feels like we're putting too much on the brothers at that Mm -hmm. moment. And not enough on the broader uh you know, just the feeling of the village. It, it feels oddly focused in the wrong direction. Um, but then when we get power man at the end, uh, it works again, it works really well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I I think strangers works fine for me. The first time I saw it, it was like a 10 out of 10 for me. I thought it was great, but I didn't have as firm a grasp on the characters of the movie or what was going on. I, I felt like so. And also that was, probably my introduction to the kinks, honestly, or things past like Lola or something like that. (laughs) It was
1: was my introduction to make me buy Lola versus Power Man.
2: (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I, I, uh, um, now I'm not saying it's the perfect needle drop there. I think it works, but I do like the way that the brothers sort of float through the funeral in slow motion. I I see that as being more of the way they might remember that funeral mm-hmm. going in the way that they were very emotional and just sort of didn't really know what was going on. It was an odd culture moment as well. It's not a, a a documentary of the the funeral procession, but rather the impression of what they had there. So I'm okay with it being focused on them. We already did show a bit about the village before and after. I'm I'm not saying we couldn't have done more, but I wouldn't want wouldn't wouldn't have wanted that to be an extremely um, uh, grieving scene, I like that it, it doesn't go too dark there. It might it might pull a rubber band too far in that direction uh, for the rest of the movie.
1: Well, and the only saving grace of it for me, I think, is the fact that it works well to, as you're saying, put us in their headspace because mm-hmm. then we're going into that flashback. Yes. And that, that hard cut works really effectively.
2: I also think that is their dad's funeral for them because they didn't make their dad's funeral. Hmm. Yeah. And so I think that is sort of their them experiencing the other grief that they they haven't really come to terms with.
1: Yeah. Uh but for I mean for the other music I think the selections are yeah. really wonderful. Even though it's sort of a slower song, the the title track to Bombay Talkie which plays a few times through here. Is
2: that the one that's like doo doo? Yes. Do, yes. do, do. If you ever just hear somebody whistling that in a grocery store, start looking around because it's probably me. That thing gets stuck in my head for a month at a time.
1: <laughs> that thing, like to say it slaps is the wrong vernacular, <laughs> but that song slaps. Like it's just, <laughs> it's so, it it's just so good. And he uses it so effectively. He yeah, uses absolutely. it properly
0: here. As much as I love those, for me, the best musical part though Is the recurring theme of "Where do you go, my lovely"? How often Mm. he cuts back to it, and especially if you've seen Hotel Chevalier, because if you've seen it and he's playing it, you're like, "Oh, this—it's
1: actually a warning sign."
0: Yeah, this loser, this creep—like it immediately sets off this like cringe moment where you're like, "Oh, he's just using this song because it's this perfect song to like, you know." Sway into the moment, um, and I think that's the recurring theme of that. Is I think really the thing that pulls me in music wise. Also, I mean, I do love this time tomorrow. The use of that, um, but I, I think play with fire might be the might be the winner though. Just the 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 tone of it matched with the images is something that is really starkly beautiful in a way that I. I don't know if the rest of the movie is quite on that tonal level. So it's a little bit of a departure. But even though it's a departure, it feels honest and right for the moment. and I do love how that makes you feel.
2: So you mentioned Hotel Chevalier. And uh, my question for you is, did you watch it before Darjeeling Limited this time? And do you feel it adds to the movie, takes away from the movie, is should it be viewed with it? Where, where do you fall on that?
0: I so I don't think you necessarily need it, but it helps a little bit. I think if you're watching the uh, play with fire sequence and then you see Natalie Portman, and you think, well, what the hell is Natalie Portman just sitting on this train in a bed for if we've never seen her before? So I think you need it for context in that regard. Does it add to the overall thrust of the movie? I don't think so, but I like it on its own. I think it's a perfect little mystery box of its own and it tells so much about this couple in their history in, what, 12 minutes I think it is. I think it's really well done in that regard, but I don't think as a whole it really fits. And I think that's why it's not just a prologue that then just goes Darjeeling Limited and then the movie earnest starts.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I think I expressed this on our previous discussion, but I don't – like, I'm of the opinion that I think they work better as separate pieces. Like like Peterson's saying, you definitely need the information, but to play it all through as one, I think is just a little too much. Even though, like, Darjeeling Limited is a tight 91 minutes, um, it's, it's still like you add another – 12, 13 minutes on top of that, and it's pushing it for me. Like, mm-hmm. I like to consume them separately. It's sort of, I think I recommended The and the Adventures of Anton mm-hmm. Bunnell, um when we discussed this before. Like, I like to consume it in that way where I can just put on Hotel Chevalier and just watch it. I can just put on Darjeeling Limited. I can watch them in reverse order, whatever you know, a day apart. Like, they're companion pieces, but I don't think it needs to be one linear yeah. uh, structure. I think I'm there as well.
0: And I've certainly seen Hotel Chevalier several times through the years. If yeah. I've only seen Darcy Unlimited once, I've seen Hotel Chevalier, I don't know, five or six times. So I return to that maybe because it's a nice, easy 13 minutes long. But
2: Well, and probably because you had it in your iTunes library because I think that was released first – yeah. Right, that was that was something that you could download. I guess as sort of an ad for the movie in a way.
0: I, I think it still is in my iTunes library. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what about you, Jake? Where do you land with it? Because I think you were more of a purist of like all. It needs one. to be there. Yeah,
2: yeah. I was, I was before, but over time, the more I'm thinking about it, I, I, I maybe you won me over last time, but I was thinking it more like the the short film after um, 400 Blows and before. Uh, what's what's the next and, one
1: Antoine and Colette is what you Antoine and
2: Colette yeah um because i feel like it's part of the universe it's relevant information but not necessary i think yeah. i think i would understand even without it and it's Something that this time I was thinking about it would I want to see two other short films from the other brothers as well as background and have those all available as part of like a collection. I don't know. I don't think it needs it because it is so economical in what it what it says. And I think I would get the full picture of Jack's character, even without Hotel Chevalier. Love it. Love that it exists. But I don't think it needs to be part of this film.
1: You also I don't think need the other two brothers because it it functions to flesh out Jack as you know it's it's as much a reflection of him and his him as a writer and all of that as everything Mm -hmm. else like it doesn't so that sort of mirror that it creates you wouldn't really get that with francis or like you don't you don't want to know the backstory of francis getting in his wreck and then with peter um Mm -hmm. it it's just it's already so elegantly kind of strung Mm -hmm. up with the relationship with his wife and all of that that yeah, you don't you don't want it and you don't need it.
2: La- last question on that: How accurate d- do you think Hotel Chevalier is? Is it an accurate portrayal of what happened, or is it his short story through his lens? All the
1: the names have been changed, or the um, I think it's accurate because we see him cleaning up and we see the sort of before and after. Um, there yeah. maybe maybe there's a little bit of embellishment, but I I get. I mean, it seems like, and it's hard to say because all that we really get of her character is what we see in Hotel Chevalier Mm -hmm. and then what we gleam from people, you know, the brothers talking about her. Yeah. But she seems like a pretty straightforward, like, she's going to tell you exactly what she thinks uh, sort of of person. That also seems like the type of person that Jack would be inherently attracted to.
0: And there's two cues, I think, to the way we should treat that uh, section or not really section of film, but that story is that when I believe it's the Peter character, agent Brody says, I like how much of an asshole you were. Yeah. And he says, yeah. Oh, well the real people. Yeah. Thank you. Like yeah. he, he changes it mid sentence because he knows I, I can drop the straight one. These are my brothers. And two, I'm not fooling anyone. And then two, when Wilson says, when they're having, uh, dinner for the first time or lunch, he says, I'm fully in support of this relationship not working.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and it's it's this great moment where you realize sometimes your siblings know better than you, like what should actually work for you. And it's, but it's also him playing a little bit of that mom role again. I mean, it goes straight back to him being the maternal figure figure.
2: Yeah. So at the end they get on the Bengal Lancer they they get their sweet lime and then it it plays Oh Champs Elysees as we see the closing shot, which doesn't really it doesn't really connect with me at all, and I don't quite get it. I know a, a music box that they've uh, turned a couple times throughout the movie plays Oh Champs Elysees, but I still don't get how that connects. I think I said this in the last review. Still doesn't connect for me. Still don't
1: know what's going on there. I think it fits. Specifically because it feels like something that Jack would curate into yeah. a movie like as like it it's fitting for the Whitman Brothers. It's not fitting for a movie about a trip through India, but it's fitting mm-hmm. for the Whitman Brothers traveling through India.
0: It's also an appropriation within a, an appropriation because the mm-hmm. song is originally what Waterloo Sunset. Uh, I think it's Waterloo Sunset initially. And then Le Champs Elysees is the French version. And then it's now being appropriated on what should be more of a *Sausage Ray ending tone to the movie. It's this French uh, song that none of the guys have ever talked about being French before. Obviously, the Hotel Savoy* is in, Fran- uh, in France, but they never really talked about France before. Um so it's, it's appropriating something twice, which I think is very much the Whitman brothers and very much they're – we're rich and we're going to do whatever we want. We're going to be the people in charge of everything and we don't care about the other people.
2: You're forgiven for the, the Kinks mistake. Waterloo Sunset, Kinks song, Waterloo Road, original English song on Whitman. No, no, no.
0: The Kinks is Waterloo Station.
2: No, it's Waterloo Sunset. Hold on. I, like I told you, this movie opened up my ex- exploration of the Kinks.
3: I tried my hardest. I don't know what else to do. I don't think Dad would have hated it. Did he really say you were his favorite? I don't know. I could barely understand him. He wasn't really breathing. I wonder if the three of us could have been friends in real life. Not as brothers, but as people. Well, we probably... would've had a better chance, I guess. Let's make another agreement. We'll all come back here in the spring when the fire- We're final... never coming back here. Let's just find an airport and go our separate ways. Wouldn't it sound great if you could hear a train going by off in the distance right now? Not really. would probably be annoying.
1: All right, guys, I'm eager as I always am with these Wes Anderson films to know what your funniest moment is. Uh, Peterson, you actually, you've surprised me with this, with, uh, it sounds like you had, you had some problems, but you didn't all out hate it. Like you were antagonizing Jake for the past day or two, (laughs) which I appreciate for just putting us in the mood of the Whitman brothers. Um, But what, what did you think? What was the funniest moment for you this time around?
0: I think it's got to be the moment where they're fighting, and he says, "I love you." I love you too. I love you too, but I'm gonna mace you in the face. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and it's it's so. I mean, it's such a Wes Anderson moment.
3: You don't love me. Yes, I do. I love you too, but I'm gonna mace you in the uh, face. Uh, Stop. Uh, 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 I
0: had to do it. How you this. Stop including me! One, it's a great character moment for all three of them. Uh, plus, Owen Wilson's just taking a belt to the face, as his face is incredibly scarred. Um, yeah, which is that, thats a moment when you see that happen. I was—I was one concerned. I was like, okay. Like how bad is he going to be hurt now? Because we don't really know the exact full extent of his injuries yet. So something bad could have happened. But then when they start wrestling and Schwarzman just like, oh, I'm going to get the mace. But the breath is he's got to load it first and then cock it. And then he's like, all right, he's got a good 15-second lead up where he's like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And he does it. He doesn't make some once. He bases this like four times throughout the so running down the hallway. And-
1: God, I I almost went with that one. Uh, luckily, I have something else. Jake, what do you have?
0: This one's kind
2: of told a little bit in two parts, but it's the second one that really gets me laughing. Uh, it's when they're in the temple, and he and um, Jack is telling Francis that um, that Peter's going to have a baby, and he said, and Francis says, "Who?" <laughs> he says, "Him, Rubby." Ruby. And then, Who? Who? <laughs> Rubby. And he rubs his, rubs his because he's always, you know, from the sunglasses,
0: from the sunglasses, which you assume is a joke. They've had like their entire lives. Oh yeah. Rubby. Of course, you know,
2: Ruby. no, no, he, they, they, to me, I, they, they make it up right there on the spot. But the, then yeah. he says that, he that, um, you know, why didn't he tell me? He doesn't want you to know. not, Forty-five seconds later in screen in screen time, that the shoe gets stolen, and and he, he
3: says, "We're in an emergency here. I got my face smashed in. Jack's heart's been ripped to shreds, and Ruby's having a child. Let's get into it." Told him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, immediately.
2: That's Ruby, and also I'm I'm spoiling both the name Ruby, so that's not a secret, and it's not a secret that I know he's having a child. He's just he, he immediately rips both those band aids off. And uh, and that that is the part that I think I laugh the most at every time. But
1: that's brothers. Like, oh, yeah, that absolutely. feels real.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's. I, I love that moment.
1: I thought about going with uh, all of the jokes about Brendan with alopecia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that,
2: that's that's the albino thing, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, but instead, <laughs> I I've got a couple of things, and they are unrelated to the film. Actually, first one. Being, uh, on the criterion disc, there is a clip where, and I think you can find it on YouTube as well, where you actually get the live audio when the brothers are at the airport and then decide that instead of going back home, they're going to go see their mom. And it's like, they're basically just doing like, uh, peanuts, adults talking gibberish, uh, the whole time. Like, so you just have like an engine roar in the, in the actual film, over them uh, talking, but when you hear the live audio, they're just going. <laughs> it, it,
2: it it's hilarious, and it makes me think that that's what like uh, a Buster Keaton or somebody was doing on the silent film sets as well.
1: Maybe I hope so. Um, <laughs> but the, and then the other one also like not actually in the film, but in the commentary at the very end. Uh, Jason Schwartzman is at Wes Anderson's apartment in New York. And, like they're all doing it through Skype, and he answers a phone call, and a guy is trying to call like I think maybe ABC like the television network, but he calls american imperial empirical pictures instead, but they like put the guy on speakerphone on the uh the commentary like at at the end, and it's just when credits are rolling, so it's not like anything else is going on, but it's just such a bizarre
3: moment you're getting a call west from New Mexico. New Mexico uh, try it Jason is in my apartment in New York hello C- call from New Mexico this is not American productions it's a uh, American empirical uh, we d- we make movies not sitcoms can I actually put you on speakerphone so my partners can hear this you gonna love this one hello sir go for it I have an idea.
0: Will attract you from probably the ages of uh, ten, eleven, twelve years old, all the
1: way up to seventy and beyond. Um, and I'll say, having listened to all of the Wes Anderson commentaries, it's not the weirdest thing that happens in a commentary <laughs> for his movies. It gets are weirder, his commentaries guys. enlightening or just weird? They're mostly enlightening. Moonrise Kingdom is a mess, guys. <laughs> Um, I recommend it just because it's, that one is not enlightening. It's really not enlightening at all. Are they drunk
2: or are they just, they just...
1: Man, I'm I guarantee you they recorded that thing for 12 hours straight. (laughs) Like there are just hints dropped here and there that they have all been in the street like and they like call up Bill Murray a few times and they like they do this thing where they kind of have guests and so they'll like kind of get people to come in and out. But it's like it's just a disaster. So it's,
2: if you needed an excuse to buy, buy the Criterion Collection of Moonrise Kingdom, like I do because I don't have it yet,
1: that's... It's, you yeah, I, I recommend man. listening to it. You're not, you're probably not going to glean much about, you know, like, generally there's some good insight about, you know, production and that sort of thing. Um, not on that one, but it is like, it's worth listening to just for like a, how can a commentary go this poorly? <laughs> so we have that to look forward to later.
3: Is that one of Alice's pots? Oh, we should order some more of these. I'll tell Brendan. Okay. He has this disease where his head is shaved, except he doesn't have to shave it because he can't grow any hair in the first place. Don't talk about it around him, though. Might offend him.
1: All right, boys, and now it's time to figure out where we're going to place this film in the Anderson Anthology. We've got three shelves at the very top, Anderson A-List. Then we've got the deep dive, marked out, deep search. And these are films that, you know, you probably should see, but you, you can survive without it as well. Like, if you're getting into Wes Anderson, you want to go a little bit deeper into his, his catalog. These are those films. And then at the bottom, um, half of the films so far, Peterson has placed here. <laughs> We've got Wes's weakest whimsies. These are the films that really have no merit in being seen unless you want to know just why there are people who hate Wes Anderson's work so much.
0: Haters gonna hate is going to hate ain't going to ain't.
1: So, Peterson, uh, I think we should start with you. Because we already know where Jake is going. And I'm just so, so curious if you're going to have more films in Wes's Weakest Whimsies than anywhere <laughs> The other two else. combined? Yeah. <laughs> where are you putting Darjeeling Limited? On which which shelf?
0: Well, so far, I've only had a Anderson A-Lists and Wes's Weakest Whimsy. I've not had a deep search, deep dive for Wes yet. Yeah. So this is clearly not a Wes's Weakest Whimsy for me. It's just not. Uh, I'm somewhere between an Anderson A-list and a deep search. I think it's. I think the next watch it would certainly jump up to an Anderson A-list for me. So I'm just gonna uh, Anderson A-list. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it to it. What? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say because I think if I watch this movie one more time. It would jump up there, and I think some of my issues would fall away. I probably may still have some of them in that 10, 12 minutes inside the village, mm-hmm. but the rest of it, I was I was really, really taken with this movie in a way that I did not think I was going to. Also, one thing I really like about doing these movies chronologically is that jumping from Life Aquatic, which I think is a clear West of Spica Swimsy, to this, it's it's like he learned how to uh, invent fire on set. He's like, you know what? He's like, I understand what works now for me. I know how to tell these stories. And I think he's only honed that craft even tighter over the last couple of years. I think this is a, this is a big uh, leapfrog film for me where I think Life Aquatic was a moment where he was trying to figure out, okay, where can I bend? Where can I break? What's the – What's the whimsy that I can get away with? Where does it not work? And I think he certainly finds that limit in uh, Life Quads with Steve Zissou. But here, I think he strips a lot of it away, and it's it's a clear Anderson A list for me. Well, not clear, but it's since it's on the edge. I'm going to say, you know what? Ty goes to the runner. Wow.
2: Yeah. I am going to sleep well tonight because of one one person <laughs> over to Team Darjeeling Limited isn't a steaming pile
0: I wouldn't say you won me over because, you know, I think my hyperboles have called calling this a piece of shit and <laughs> <laughs> look like Donald Trump's taco bowl and all that. Like, you know, <laughs> that was all just a, a poke and prod you. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I, 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 I won me over. Uh, if you want to say that, sure. You can go tell Chelsea, you know what? I won him over. I did this. <laughs> we can have our child in peace.
1: Jake, have you, you, I convinced you to to knock this down from Anderson A-List? No. Of course you haven't. Of course you haven't. This is
2: an Anderson A-List. I, I think kind of the, the point that Peterson's making, I, I almost think that things from here on out are all sitting on a shelf above the things that came before this. Now, the, the exception of that for me, I think Rushmore – was probably his strongest before this. I think Rushmore's stronger than than Royal Tenenbaums. But from here on out, I, I don't think he really makes many missteps. I think I think it's pretty much just uh, pounding out movies that I'll probably end up slotting all of them in Anderson A list. Um, and this is kind of a pivotal moment for Wes. I think uh, maybe that the ideas he may have had coming in as a filmmaker of oh, I want to do one about a big big family or a sea explorer things like that. This one's. Uh showing some evolution, showing him moving out of his comfort zone, but not too much. And it's one that just sings to my heart and I'm gonna watch it every year until I'm dead.
0: Can I ask you a question, Jake, before sure. we move on to Chris? After the discussion, where did you think I was going and where do you think Chris is about to go?
2: I thought you were going high deep search. I don't know about Chris. I think mm, I'm just got to see. Chris, Chris, where are you?
1: So before I put this movie back on, which I will say was a terror to watch, my son woke up three times, the Blu-ray player froze twice mm-hmm. <laughs> for a 90-minute movie. It took me over two hours to watch. But before that even happened, I was pretty sure I was edging on Weakest Whimsies. Okay. Pretty sure. Ooh. Um, obviously, I've been pretty... Um, glowing in general and there are you know i have nitpicks and there's still things that don't sit well with me uh this i i will say though this movie has risen a lot for me i still think the description of my letterboxed uh, list of ranking wes anderson films ranking from best to darjeeling limited that description can still stay this is still my least favorite wes anderson film. okay um but it has, it has transcended. It is firmly in deep search for me.
2: Hey,
1: all other Wes Anderson films, literally every single other film he's made is a warm blanket film for me, where I can just like, if I'm having a bad day, I can put it on Mm -hmm. and just sink into it and forget about everything else. I, I think it's the brothers that put me on edge in a way that like, this is more a challenging film for me to want to revisit. It's as i've found rewarding to revisit um and i'm actually looking forward to the next time in you know maybe a year or two when i come back to it again when and we review
2: it on this podcast again
1: <laughs> when we uh, <laughs> biannually we will review <laughs> doju limited in perpetuity until the world ends um but I'm I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, okay, is it going to continue to evolve for me? Because that's, that's the thing that I've always loved about Wes's films is they – I continue, no matter how many times I see them, I continue to find stuff. And this is one that I thought I had mined for everything, and I was wrong. Um, so it sits in deep search right now. We'll see if in a decade it can creep its way up. I don't know.
0: One thing you mentioned, Chris, that I just want to touch on for one second was that you – the brothers put you on edge – yeah. After watching this, I checked about four times. He had to have written this with no. I knew he'd written it with Roman Coppola and Schwartzman, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I was like, he had to have. The Bombok had to like. He had to be around. He had to be yeah. hanging out with these guys. No. Nah. I mean, there's he wasn't, which I thought was strange. Maybe some of it rubbed off on him during the writing of Life Aquatic. But I was like, it's just Margot at the wedding, that kind of bitter. Yeah. Acerbic. Uh, taste that which does not sit well with me but here something about the bitter bitterness of the brothers works and so
1: I, I will say Margaret at the Wedding still easily Noah's worst movie better than I remembered I revisited for the first time in over a decade
0: I should probably do it a rewatch because
1: it's on canopy it's worth it's worth a rewatch Jack Black is really serviceable Nicole Kidman's very good um, still his weakest movie so make it a double feature, Darjeeling Limited, and and Margot at the wedding.
2: Man, I, I'm just so happy that we we escaped this without a weapon's weakest whimsies. This <laughs> is just this whole podcast was worth it, guys. Buying a microphone was worth it. Just life's worth it.
0: In celebration, uh. celebration, we're we're hoisting our glasses up in celebration that we are not going to murder each other and throw belts at each other's faces. What are we going to be drinking tonight, Chris?
1: Well, I think I have a very appropriate uh, pairing with Darjeeling Limited. It is Bengali. This is an American Indian pale ale from Six Point Brewing in Brooklyn, New York. So first of all, let's point out uh, the style is Indian pale ale, but this is the appropriated American version of an Indian pale ale. So very fitting for the Whitman brothers traveling through India. Uh, And then Bengali obviously appropriating an Indian um, region for the film. Uh, this is a beer. It's come in at 6.6 ABV and 66 IBU. I don't know if they're trying to go for a little demonic thing there and all six across the board. I'm not, not sure. Uh, but this is, this is a really crisp, clean, powerful IPA as I mean, if you know anything about the American IPA style, it's uh, very hop forward very strong in, in, in the bitterness. Um, but it's, and it is, it's powerful, but it's, uh, it's a really great beer for, you know, to have ice cold on a hot day. The very first time I had this was, um, the 4th of July on a rooftop in Brooklyn, New York, and it was hot and the beer was cold and it was just perfect so i think you know if you were traveling around on a long train ride through the hot indian desert uh this would be this would be a pretty good pairing and you know i will disclaimer let's forget the fact that a majority of the film was filmed in Rajasthan, in the western side of uh india and the bengal region is on the other side of the country in the eastern side of india uh the whitman brothers certainly wouldn't notice the oversight so uh i think we're good by recommending uh bengali american ipa from six point brewing enjoy it when you revisit and discover that uh maybe the Darjeeling limited isn't quite as bad as you thought it was <laughs> The Darjeeling
2: Limited is currently streaming on HBO or available on a ubiquitous Wes Anderson-approved Blu-ray disc from the Criterion Collection. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at at warstartsatmidnight.com.
0: Or if email is your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA.
1: Stick around, folks. we get got really red recommendations coming up Next. Okay, guys, really rad recommendations again. Uh, very curious what you guys are going to pair with this, if you're if you're going to pair up a double feature or just something you've uh, enjoyed lately. Um, Jake, what do you got?
2: Originally, I was planning on recommending a Goofy movie, one of my favorite road trip films. Uh, but I'll save that recommendation for a later date after I have a child and probably end up watching that 40 or 50 more times. Instead, I'm continuing what I did last week, which was uh, when I recommended Dirty Work uh, for some reason. I'm still going to recommend a comedy that I haven't seen in over a decade, but I think is relevant to today's film. Are you guys ready? (laughs) Any guesses?
0: (laughs) Lay it on me.
2: It's not Tommy Boy. It's Eurotrip from 2004. Do you guys remember Eurotrip?
1: Eurotrip, underrated, I think. It's That's not I, it's not a masterpiece but it's it's good. I I remember like wall-to-wall laughing
2: at this in 2004. Like, I thought, it, w- it was no anchor man, but it was something I thought was extremely funny, and as a, a lover of road trips, this, uh, road, road trips and road trip films, this one slots in exactly where I like to see it, which is extremely funny, place-to-place, essentially a, a, a sketch film kind of thrown together in all of these different locations with some characters to tie them together.
1: Yeah, it, it gets the structure right. Yeah, yeah,
2: and and that's, that's 80% of a road film. It's so easy that anyone could make a successful road film. So uh, it, it stars Michelle Trachtenberg and also a bunch of people whose top IMDb listing is Eurotrip. Of course. So. And Matt really Damon. Know. And Matt Damon. And Matt Damon does make a a guest appearance early in the movie
0: and sings a really catchy song. You know why his haircut's that, right?
2: Was he in V for Vendetta? No, he was filming, <laughs> I think
0: it was the Brothers Grimm he was filming at the time. Okay. And he was like, a couple towns over, and he was like, oh, yeah, I'll pop over and do one scene in your movie. So he popped over and did one scene in the movie, and there you go. Hmm. That's why he looks like he does in that movie.
2: That's the true link. That's actually what I meant, was uh, this is supposed to be <laughs> movies where someone had shaved their head for another film and made a short guest appearance near the first beginning of the movie.
0: Also, Michelle Trachtenberg's uh, Known For also has... Eurotrip.
2: I, I think of Harriet the Spy when I think of Michelle Trachtenberg.
1: I was going to say that, but I couldn't confirm <laughs> in my mind whether or not she was Harriet the Spy.
0: I think she was. Not on her known floor.
1: Jake, if we wanted to watch Eurotrip, where is it available?
2: At the places that you rent movies from on your TV. Hollywood Video? <laughs> Definitely Hollywood Video or something midnight brought to you by Hollywood Video.
1: Peterson, what do you have to recommend? You going, you going lowbrow?
0: I'm going very low brow, So, going for the 1947 film Black Narcissus from the Archers.
2: Ooh, good one.
0: Which, if you've not seen Black Narcissus, which I had not at the time of seeing Darzulian Limited for the first time, when they get to the monastery, mm-hmm. it is somebody needs to pay $100 million to the Archers for the cribbing of the monastery. It is almost shot for shot exactly how that monastery looks even with the bells, but for those who don't know, it is about a, a kind of nuns who go to live in a monastery high in the Himalayas uh, on a far side of India. And whether it is the isolation or what I think they also say, the, the air or the food, all these different reasons, everyone starts going a little bit stir crazy. Um, won't spoil any more than that, but – it is a movie about uh, faith in some ways, but also about what isolation can do to you, which also kind of has a nice little uh, tie into where we are at right these uh, right this very second. Um, and I also think that Mister Dean in that movie is a great inspiration for Adrian Brody's attire in this movie, Something Limited. Um, hmm, it's the short shorts and the mm-hmm. shirt and. I certainly didn't make that connection when I saw Black Narcissus the first time. But then after seeing it um, so close together, yeah, it, it really sticks out. Um, and I think Adrian birdie has got a great wardrobe in Darjeeling Limited. So Mr. Dean looks really good in Black Narcissus. If you've not seen any Powell Pressburger films, this isn't my favorite of their works. It's probably somewhere fifth or sixth for me – maybe,
1: and it's not a it's it's not necessarily a good entry point. This was the very first of theirs that I saw, actually, before derjeeling Limited, and there are things that I think would have drawn me into them further uh, had I seen it before this.
0: It's it's also it's a good hour shorter than Life, Death, Colonel Blimp. Um, yeah, it's forty five minutes shorter than something like The Red Shoes. It's, but I will say it is unbelievably. Gorgeous to look at. It is an insanely beautiful movie. I mean, what's even crazier is these are matte paintings that you're actually watching. You're not actually watching landscapes, you're seeing these matte paintings, and there's the really, the shot that is maybe the central focus of the film or really the marketing of the film. And it's the bird's eye view looking down at the bell, Mm -hmm. and then you just see this insanely long drop. Which, if you know anything about movies, you're probably going to see something fall off that drop. Um, So, that is Black Narcissus. It's currently on Criterion Channel. It's a great Palin Pressburger film. As I said, not my favorite, but they also have three films that I would say – maybe four that I would really rank as some of the all-time absolute greats.
1: For me this week, I'm going with – so, this is a recommendation that – I took a note on this Um, back when we first kind of discussed maybe doing this podcast, I started just randomly taking notes of like, I'd see a movie that would remind me of another movie and think, Oh, I'll, I'll recommend that. And I'm, it's been so long now that I don't remember what it was. I should have taken notes. I don't remember what it was, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Uh, Vim vendors, 1984 film, Paris, Texas. Uh, I, while watching it, decided this would be a great pairing with Darjeeling Limited. Um, It's a story of a guy who finds himself in the middle of Paris, Texas, basically the middle of nowhere, and has kind of lost his memory. His, I believe brother comes to pick him up, take him back home. And he's kind of slowly piecing things back together. Uh, it's a real, I mean, if, if you're familiar with Bender's work, it's a real beautiful sort of poetic, um, uh, film. There's kind of great journey across the landscape of the American West. Um, so maybe that was something, you know, a parallel of going through, um, going through India, going through the American, I don't know. Uh, But more importantly, the, I believe, if not the only one of the only starring roles for Harry Dean Stanton, and he is exceptional in this. Um, It's available on Criterion Channel and Hoopla and Canopy right now. So if you have access to any of those, um, highly recommend it. And I know anderson has dropped it as a um inspiration in the past for um for movies not necessarily for darjeeling limited but uh but for others so there is he is a fan um so check it out paris texas
0: yeah i've always wanted to see this
2: And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Join us next time for a brand new episode of Magnificent Andersons, our ongoing exploration of the works of two American auteurs, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Next time, we're hanging with Wes once again as he ventures into uncharted territory with his first stab at full-blown stop-motion animation with 2009's Fantastic
1: Mr. Fox. Find us online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes and more. And if you've got something to say, you can always email the show at hello at warstartsmidnight.com, or better yet, give us a call and leave a voicemail at 484 424 6362. Or you can always say hello on Twitter. I'm at WSAMPOD.
2: I'm at jgrg 23
0: And I'm at Peterson W. Hill. If you enjoy War Starts at Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome.
2: The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck at Lava Sound Studios. And shout out to Generationals for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at generationals.com. Thanks
0: for listening, folks. Cough surf, that's a dumb way to get loaded, Jack.
2: Why is your head so bald?